Welcome to the Inez Franklin Teaching and Sermons Podcast. Inez is a teaching pastor, public speaker, and founder at trochia.org. Learn more about Inez at www.inezfranklin.com. We hope this teaching brings you guidance, connection, or tools as we seek God together today. Enjoy the teaching. Darius, can you do that while I preach the whole time? It's going to be good. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, the tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It's about 2,700 feet tall, 163 stories. And you maybe have seen a picture of it, or maybe you watched the movie Mission Impossible and watched Tom Cruise scale the side of the building. That was no stunt double. And you get a sense for how big this building is, but the closer you come to it, the bigger the building is. Uh, it is a picture uh, that I took when Jim and I were in Dubai in 2011. This thing is big. And as we were driving and getting close to it, we got the sense of how big it is the closer we got to it. And I think that's the case with anything that's large. Unless you're close to it, you don't get the scale of its largeness, right? Uh, For example, Mount Everest, right? If you've seen pictures of Mount Everest, it looks like a piece of cake to uh, climb until you're there and you realize how hard it is. Or perhaps the beautiful redwood trees in California. You think, oh, those are not so big of trees until you drive your car through it and you're just amazed at its size. Or perhaps you have been lucky enough to be on a boat and uh, be next to a blue whale as it passes by and realize how tiny you are and how big they are. Big things require us to get close to them so we actually get a sense of their magnitude. And I think that's the case with God. God is so big, so magnificent, so wonderful We cannot understand, grasp, imagine his greatness unless we draw close. I'm convinced that all of us think of God a lot smaller than he is. I'm convinced that your God, my God, is too small. I think often we we don't draw close to God and we start to miss his magnitude. I think we lean towards a God that we can control manage, right? A God that doesn't embarrass us or angry us. A God that doesn't mess with our plans. Listen, if your God says to you, listen, don't take any risk, keep it safe. If your God says to you or obeys all that you command, does everything you want, when you want it. If God complies with your calendar, your agenda, your plan. If your God's job is to make your life easier and safer, if your God is always liking everything that you like and everyone that you like, if your God always agrees with you in everything that you think about, if your God is fine with you spending one hour a week with him on Sundays, if your God is okay with you being the way that you are, and it's not calling you to grow, if God never wrecks your schedule or messes with your budget or gets into telling you that you can do things you can never imagine, if God doesn't stretch you, if God doesn't take your breath away and take you to tears, your God is too small, way too small. 
And I think we often fall into the trap of believing in a small little God that we can manage and control. I love the words of the British philosopher Evelyn Underhill. She said this, a God small enough to be understood will never be big enough to worship. Let me say that again. Those are good words, aren't they? A God small enough to be understood will never be big enough to worship. A small God that we create cannot possibly help us in our moments of sorrow, in, in, in the face of evil, in the face of struggle, in the face of cancer, in the face of anxiety and depression. Little gods can't help us in any way. They're powerless. The God of the Bible is not a small God. And I want us, as we lean towards Christmas, to be it's Christmas, that's a long time from now. I got a big vision, can you tell? As we lean towards Easter, which if you've been in the church for some time, you've, you've been through many Easter's and many Good Fridays, it's very easy for us to take this week for granted. Check market, we've done this, been there, oh, that's another pretty Easter service. But I don't want that for us. You see, what I want for us this year, this moment, starting today, Palm Sunday, is for us to lean into this as though it's the very first Easter, as the truths that we are about to walk through this week will overwhelm our hearts in such a way that we will see God in his true magnificent state, that we will see God bigger than we'd ever imagined, that we will understand God's greatness and God's amazing love for us in a way perhaps we never have. And so I want us to correct our view of God. I want us to lean in this Easter and see him for who he is. Now, today, we start with Palm Sunday. This was the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the beginning of a week when the most amazing truths would be told. And the people that were there were expecting uh, Jesus to come, but not the way that he came. And as we read the scriptures, I want you to notice something. You're going to see that he came as an unexpected Savior. He was a Savior, but not the Savior they were expecting He came telling an unexpected truth, a truth they would have never thought of. They did not even like when they heard it. And he came displaying an unexpected love. And as we look at the scripture, I pray that you would let these words, this picture of Jesus coming in, bathe your mind, your heart, your soul with God's truth. We're going to be in John chapter 12. If you have a Bible with you, go there, listen to this amazing story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. Now, as you find your way there, I want to just let you know, in October of this year, I'm going back to Israel with a group of people. I hope you'll join us. We just went last October, powerful time. And when you read the scriptures after you've been to Israel, you actually see the places that we read. And so this very picture of Jesus entering Jerusalem changes completely once you've actually been there. So I pray that you'll consider that. We have brochures in the back. That's it for the announcement. Okay. Verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look at the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, Glorify your name. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we look at this event, this real event that happened so many years ago, and as we begin this week to relive, recount, reimagine all that happened on that holy week, I pray, oh God, that you would be the one to speak to each and every one of us. Every person here has come with their circumstances, their story, and they need to know how big and wonderful you are. They need to know how much you love them, how powerful your love is and how extravagant your love is. And Lord, I cannot do those things, only you can. You can speak to your people in a way I can't. So Lord, I pray that I would simply just be a vessel. And whatever I say, God, may it be your voice that every man and woman hears. May it be your heart that they feel, and may it be your truth that sets them free to serve you wholeheartedly. We pray these things in your matchless name as we sang this morning, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. All right, let me give you some context. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. We're told at the Passover festival. This would have been one of three festivals that would basically swell up the city of Jerusalem with thousands of people, uh, similar to how a city would grow because an Olympics was coming in. And, you know, cities have to do a lot of work to prepare for the Olympics. Jerusalem would be filled with thousands of people and many animals that would be brought for sacrifice. The Passover festival was a festival as a remembrance back to the time when the people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God sent Moses to release the people from the grip of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refused to let them go. So God sent plague after plague after plague 
hoping that Pharaoh would let go of the people and set them free, but he refused. The final plague was the worst plague of all. God called that every firstborn of Egyptian family would die that night. He did not want the people of Israel to lose their firstborn, so he told them, pick a perfect lamb without blemish and sacrifice this lamb. Take the blood of the lamb and put it over your house post, the door. When the spirit of the Lord came that night, he passed over that home and that family did not lose their firstborn child. That's why it's called the Passover. And every year the people of Israel would celebrate the day they were saved by God. And there was a promise that one day a Messiah, a savior would come again and they would be set free once and for all from any oppression that they dealt with. Now, this time they're dealing with the oppression of the Romans. So their expectation was that Jesus, having proven himself to be as God, doing miracles that no one else could do, teaching things no one else could teach, that he was finally the savior they were waiting for. So we're told that a huge crowd, this is in verse 12, they came to the festival, they heard Jesus was coming, and they met them with palm branches. Now, why palm branches? That's coming from Leviticus. You know that book that you love to read and quote all the time? How many of you could say, Leviticus is my favorite book? Right, nobody. But maybe, maybe this passage you'll like. This is verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 40. It says, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God. These palm branches uh, were essentially being used to glorify Jesus as he was coming in. People took off their cloaks and threw them on the ground and as a red carpet for Jesus, the Savior they were hoping to have. And they wailed and they moved around the branches, sort of essentially calling on Jesus as a king. And then they said, Hosanna, Hosanna. That word means save us, save us. Jesus, we're under oppression of the Romans. Save us from the Romans. We need a savior. Come, fight the battle that we need to be fought. But here's the thing. They understood they needed a savior, but they not understand what Jesus came to do. You see, there were oppressors that came and went all the time. The Jews had already experienced oppression from the Babylonians. They, they experienced oppression from Syria. They're now experiencing oppression from Rome. And once you got rid of Rome, there'd be someone else that would come and oppress them. Jesus didn't come to deal with a little kingdom that was being a problem. Jesus came to save them from themselves. See, the oppression came from their own sinful life from the sin in their heart, from the sin we have in our hearts. And that is what Jesus came to save them and you and me from. His mission was much greater than they expected. It wasn't a temporary mission for a group of people in a particular land. It was for every man, every child, every tribe, every tongue, everyone in the world that would receive it. This savior that came was unexpected indeed. And he came sitting on a donkey. You can't miss that in verse 14. It says, Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. And he quotes from Zechariah. John gives us a a bridge version, but listen to the whole version in Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This 
unexpected savior came in an unexpected way. There was a tradition at the time that if a king would come into the city for victory, for battle, he came seated on a horse, prideful, with all their their caravans showing how powerful they were. Jesus came by himself on a donkey, showing he did not come to battle, he came for peace. And this was an unexpected type of savior. How could a man sitting on a little donkey possibly take down powerful Rome? But that's not why Jesus came. He did not come to take that room. He took down, he came down, he came to take a bigger enemy down. A much greater enemy that wants to take you and I down for good. Jesus came for greater plans that they could ask or imagine. And then he comes with an unexpected truth. In verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. How? Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But instead, he says, if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus comes for a truth that blew their mind. And I think it ought to blow your mind and mine. Because here's the thing. We, we so hear this over and over. We take it for granted. We internalize it and are not shocked by it. Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die. He came to die a shameful death. And this is a picture back from the Old Testament. Let's go back to Leviticus, your favorite book. I'm quoting a lot out for you today. I bet you're happy about that. In Leviticus chapter 17, it says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonements for one's life. You see, in the book of Leviticus, part of the reason none of us like to read it, there's all these uh, festivals and all these rituals which require animal sacrifice. It's kind of gross to read. Anybody with me? And it ought to be. It ought to shock us and, yes, even disgust us when we realize that animal sacrifice is a picture of the cost of our sin. That something must die, there is a penalty for our sin. In fact, Scripture tells us in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Death is how the penalty for our rebellion, for our sinfulness is paid. And in the Old Testament, God gave the people a temporary way to deal with their sin. But now Jesus comes once and for all to pay the price, to finish the work, so that none of us would have to pay that penalty. You know, my, my hairstylist is Jewish, and uh, one summer, her son was invited to go to a BVS, um, it was just bi- vacation Bible study at a church, and she didn't know, so she sent him along. She's, t- I'm, you know, she's cutting my hair. I'm a pastor. She knows it, and I think she, for a moment, forgot, because she's cutting my hair going, what were they doing? Telling my seven-year-old about a man who died on the cross and died this terrible death. That's a, who teaches a little seven-year-old this crazy stuff? You know, when you think about it, I was so proud of her. It takes an unbeliever to look at the cross and go, what? Why Why does that have to happen? 
And what, what God, why would God send his son to die? It takes an unbeliever to be shocked by a truth that we tend to take for granted. You see, Jesus went to the cross for the very first time. Jesus was guilty. He was good, righteous, obedient. He was one with God. He was perfect in every way, never sinned, never left the presence of God. For the first time on the cross, he was guilty of adultery, of robbery, of lying, of abuse, of violence, of murder, of covetousness. He was guilty of pride. He was guilty of taking things that didn't belong to him. He was guilty of abuse. He was guilty of gossip. He was guilty of every single thing that you and I have done, will do for all of time. Now, when I think about my own sin, and I you heard a song that says, you know, my sins kept them on the cross. That song always wrecks me. I, I always start crying because I, if Jesus came to die just for my sins, he had a lot to die for. There was plenty to leave Jesus on the cross. I think of my own life and I think of my pride. I think of my ambition. I think of my line. I think of the things I've taken that don't belong to me. I think of the things I've destroyed with my way of thinking, my selfishness, my self-centeredness. There was enough for Jesus to die just for my sins. And I'm overwhelmed that he had to do that. And then when I think he died for your sins too, and not just your sins today, but your sins tomorrow, your sins in the past, he died for all of our sins. Think about that. All of that was on the cross on Jesus. He came to die for us. And it ought to shock us. So many of us say, well, we don't need a savior. I don't need a savior. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. And here's the thing. Jesus did not wait for us to get it together in order to save us. He didn't say, clean it up. You know, if someone came to you and said, Good news, I'm going to take all your debt. I'm going to clear your debt. I'm going to pay for everything you owe. And, you st- and you're like, oh, okay, that's really nice. It's going to cost you a lot. I have a big debt. And you think, maybe I ought to clean a little bit of my debt so this person doesn't have to pay quite as much. Might be a little embarrassed to show them all that I owe. So I'm going to only give them this much. And then maybe I'll let them pay for my debt. Jesus doesn't wait for us to clean up. He doesn't wait for us, Right? to repent. He doesn't wait for us to even understand that we need him or accept that we need him. In Romans chapter five, it says this, God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were still sinners, while we didn't care about him, while we were looking away from him, while we were neglecting him, while we were making fun of him, while we were using his name in vain, while we were prideful to the point of saying, you don't even exist. Jesus came and died for us. That's his love. It's an unexpected kind of love. It's a love that's so extravagant, so huge. We cannot put it in our heads. We cannot understand it. We cannot grasp it. And boy, do we take it for granted, don't we not? Oh, we make Jesus and God so small when we make his sacrifice a little thing. When we don't recognize how costly it was. And he chose to do this. It didn't happen to him. He chose to do this. He says in verse 27, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? He says, no. 
It's for this reason that I came. I chose to do this. I chose to do this for you. In Matthew 26, it says this. Says this. I'm so worked up. Oh, my goodness. Are you? Because this is big. Do not think. I cannot call the Father, and he will at once, at once, all Jesus had to do is ask God. At once, God would put at his disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Every legion is 1,000. 12 legions of angels God would send at once if Jesus said, I'm not doing this. Save me out of this. Get me out of here quick. Never mind. This is a big lot of sin I got to die for. I want out. But he doesn't say that. He says, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In John chapter 10, he says, no one, no one takes it from me. But I lay down my life on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. I do this willingly, intentionally, out of love. Out of love. Salvation is a free gift. You cannot earn it. I don't care if you have a billion dollars. You can't come up to God and say, or a trillion or whatever the biggest number is today, whatever the national debt is. Imagine you had all that money and you came to God and say, I got all this money. I don't have to pay and You don't have to pay the price for me. And God says, there's nothing you have that's good enough to pay for the sins of the world. Only Jesus had that. For By his dying, we receive salvation and freedom that we cannot even grasp. You know, the song says, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin on the cross. That is the mercy of God, that he doesn't even let us see what it cost his son. You and I can imagine someone dying, but we don't understand the torture that Jesus experienced when he took on our sin. When he says he gave up his life, the word for life there is his soul, his whole being, his relationship with his father. He gave something you and I cannot understand or imagine. We don't know what it cost. And that's his mercy and his grace for us. But listen, make no mistake, it was costly. And that's the truth that Jesus came to bring. He's an unexpected savior. He brought an unexpected truth and he displayed an unexpected love. Much bigger, much greater than you and I could ever imagine. Let us not lose sight of the magnitude of his love for us. And what is that call for you and I to do? What does he expect from us? He simply wants us to follow his example. He wants us to give from our lives. It's amazing to me. Jesus was perfect, holy, righteous, good. He gave all of that for us. And he says, okay, you give your thing, right? I mean, think of yourself for a moment. I'm thinking for myself. And I know that all I have to offer to God, it's small compared to what he's offered to me. And yet he says, go ahead, offer that. That's good enough. I'll take all of you, all that you have to offer, your imperfection, your weakness, even your pride, even your dark moments, even your dark thoughts, your ambition. I even take that. I'll take all of that. Give me your heart. Give me all of your worship. Let me use you for my purposes. It says in John chapter 12, verse 25, anyone who loves their lives 
we'll lose it. We try to grasp for life. We cannot get it on our own. We will lose it. But anyone who hates their lives in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. The Father will honor the one who serves me. In Mark chapter 8, he puts it this way, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Something needs to die in us. There are things that we need to put down this week, maybe today. There are things we need to let go of so we can give God all that we are. Every week here at the chapel, we, we have a cross right here on the corner and paper and pencils and pins. And the picture is for us to put to death our sin, to say, Jesus, you went to the cross for this sin. I don't need to live under that sin anymore. I can live free from that sin. There's no longer judgment or shame for me. There's only freedom and love and grace and mercy. Therefore, I put that to death. I put my pride to death. I put my ambitions to death. I put all the things that I can think of that I know of and whatever he reveals to me on the cross because he wants it. Now, on Good Friday here at the church, we have a great service at the worship center. They put crosses like this all over the floors, and they have nails, actual nails and hammers, and people write down what they need to put to death, and they nail this, and you listen to the sound of the nails being driven into the wood, imagining the nails being driven into the hands of Jesus and his feet and we put things to death. What needs to be put to death in your life? Right? What do you need to put down? What do we, as a church, as a community, need to put down? What must die that we might live for Christ? What is keeping us from embracing the extravagant love of God. Let's put that to death. In Galatians 2, it says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that not an anthem for us? that we might live a different kind of life altogether. You see, the world will see Jesus when we actually do what he did, when we follow his footsteps, when we demonstrate a life of surrender, a life of embracing his love and his grace for us. And this is the way of the cross. This is what we're called to this Easter as you walk this week, as you join us for the Good Friday services and the Easter services, my prayer is that you would lean in closer to God who comes close to you, that you are overwhelmed by his amazing, magnificent, overpowering, I don't even have the words, that we're overwhelmed by his love and that by his love you are compelled to action. Let's read this together. This is out of 2 Corinthians. This is my prayer for you and for me. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all 
that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Here. Yes. Amen. Here. You know what amen means? That's truth. I agree. Here. The new is here. You've given your life to Jesus Already you're a new creation and you live life differently than anyone else does. There are people in our lives who need to experience the love of Christ. They need to experience this freedom. May you and I be used by God that they might experience grace in whatever way Jesus sees possible. So as we respond to God here at the chapel, we have the very stations. They're beautiful ways for us to like walk through these truths and reminders. We come to the communion, the place where we see the unexpected Savior who came to die for us, given all of himself, his body, his blood, his soul, his being, that you and I could be free. We take the bread, we dip it in the cup, and we take it in. We're saying we're taking Jesus in. We're letting him come in and make us new. We go to the cross, as I said, to confess our sins. We come to the candles. We remember the hope that is ours. We have a, our elder here and his wife, a prayer team around the room. We pray for and, and for one another. We ask God to help us in our weakness. We give in the offering boxes from the abundance that he gives us. It's just a practice for us to remember All that we have, including our breath, is his gift. And then we worship. Like the people who saw Jesus coming down into Jerusalem. We, you know, you can grab a palm if you want. We can make some noise, some joyful noise at the fact that you and I are saved, are saved for good, and are loved beyond measure. And we serve a God that's much greater than any circumstance. We take a moment and we enter into heaven here on earth. When we say all angels sing with us to the glory of our Father. And so that's what we do together as community. So don't leave. Don't leave until you worship with us. Let's make some joyful noise. Go ahead and respond. Thank you again for listening. Make sure to learn more about Inez Franklin at www.inezfranklin.com. You can help share these teachings by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sending this episode to a friend. Make sure to follow Inez Franklin on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and more where she is engaging with the community and inviting us to participate with God and his work together. Thanks again.